Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. God Designed Marriage Series, we have been looking to uh, build strong marriages and uh, thus strong homes by building according to God's Word. Remember, Jesus said that uh, those who listen and act on His Word are like those who build uh, their, their lives on the rock. Those who listen to Jesus' words, but they don't actually apply them to their lives, they don't act on Jesus' words, can be like compared to those who build their, their lives on the sand. And uh, so when the storms come, it becomes evident uh, what we have built our lives out of, or what we've built our lives on, if we built it on the rock of God's word or on the sand of my own ideas and thoughts and opinions or the culture's ideas about how I should do marriage. And uh, we could also say uh, the storms test what we've built our houses out of. We talked about the the big bad wolf coming along, huffing and puffing and threatening to blow our houses down. Uh, and the big bad wolf reveals what we've built it out of, uh, straw, sticks, or bricks. And that's why we've been uh, building out of building blocks. That's our term for bricks. Okay? Uh, so these are the things we've looked at so far. And la- right now we are on that last building block uh, and seventh building block called the cash because one of the most frequent storms that test marriages are the financial storms, the financial storms that hit us, and, and they are unavoidable. No matter how hard we try, no matter how great we are with money, financial storms are going to come. They're going to test our marriage, but we want to try and be as prepared as possible for those storms. And uh, I've told you that I like to think of uh, money as a magnet. Money is a magnet that uh, you know, magnets, if used one way, I went and took some magnets off the care ministries board out there uh, this morning, and I thought, you know, I can't get these two magnets together. They just won't go. But if I turn them around, right, they stick. Like money in marriage is a lot like magnets. Uh, you use money one way in your marriage, and it's like, uh, it's, it divides the couple. You can't get them together, and it's frustrating. But if you use money God's way, According to his word, that, that couple is going to find some unity there, some oneness. And uh, they're going to be a powerful team for God. Last week, we spent a lot of time talking about how God is the owner and the provider of everything. We laid that foundation. Um, God's the owner and provider of everything, including our money. And that theology brings pra- practical benefits with it, right? Contentment. I mean, if God's the owner and master of everything, He's my provider, then I can, I can experience contentment. Uh, my security is not going to be in what I do, what I own. My, you know, it's not going to be in my, my IRA. My security is not in my savings account. My security is in God, who was, is going to provide for me no matter what, just like He provides for the birds. And, uh, that, but that, that, Theological truth, the fact that God's the owner and provider of everything we talked about, also necessitates that we become faithful stewards, right? Faithful stewards of His resources. And today we're going to look at some common sense biblical money principles that are going to help us become more faithful stewards. And uh, if you're a Dave Ramsey fan, his his name might be a curse word in your home, I don't know. But... uh, (laughs) um, I'm a Dave Ramsey fan. I'll admit that today might seem a little banal to you if, if you're a Ramsey fan, a little repetitive, a little lacking originality on my part. But, uh, you know, sometimes we need one-trick ponies in our life like Dave Ramsey to teach us the same old truths over and over again. And I usually don't tell you to think about football. Um, and today I know you don't want to think about football because you and I both watched those Huskers play yesterday. But... If you 
I, money and finances, right? I try to, try to think of them like football. A football team needs a strong offense and a strong defense. We witnessed a weak defense yesterday, <laughs> right? We need, we need both, strong offense, strong defense. Uh, so first we're going to look at today our first heading, the offense. Some offensive principles for money. And uh, our first offensive uh, principle is to create a budget. Create a budget. A lot of people groan, I know, when they hear that word budget like it's some restrictive curse word. But if you budget properly with some flexibility and yet at the same time you're still challenging yourself, budgets are actually going to give you the freedom to spend and to spend without worry. I think a lot of people give up too early on budgeting. They try it for a couple of months. This was my, I'm saying this from experience, try it for a couple months. I'm too rigid with it. It doesn't work. I don't like it. And I give up because it just didn't work after a couple months. But you need at least three months to find some sort of efficiency and get used to it. So Proverbs 21.20 says, uh, The wise have wealth and luxury, but fools spend whatever they get. Uh, Proverbs 21.5, Good planning and hard work lead to prosperity, but hasty shortcuts lead to poverty. So implied in those verses is the, this principle of hard work and long-term planning with our money. We're thinking ahead. What are we going to do with this money, right? Not waiting to the end of the month and waiting where all, wondering where all of the money went. Okay, so that's, this is what a budget is. It's a plan for your money, and I think it's the number one tool uh, for you to get control of your money rather than your money control you. Uh, you get control of your money. It's the number one tool for that, for avoiding financial storms, and then for making your money go further. Make your money go further. And if you uh, want to get out of debt, if you want to be a biblical giver, you want to be a saver, you need to start budgeting. And for married couples, I recommend budgeting together. That's what I recommend in my premarital stuff. You budget together, and the reason for that is because it develops this habit of having healthy financial conversations regularly. Healthy conversations about money regularly, not just when there's a crisis. I think some couples, it seems like, you know, we, we're only going to talk about money when we're having problems. Isn't that the way it tends to go? Some of you grew up watching your parents do that, and they talk about it while they're driving down the road. Right? They're just, it's just... We're only going to talk about money when things are tight. And, and so it seems like money conversations are always negative. I don't want to talk about money. It's always negative. They have no plan together because there's a, a lack of communication and frustration. And they're wondering why we're broke. And, and there's always too much month at the end of the money. And maybe you, some of you guys are feeling that way right now. It's getting pretty close to the end of the month. Where's all the money? I thought I had more money. I should have had more money. But I don't know where it's gone. Well... Start budgeting. Then you'll start to see where it's going. I've, I've listened to the, the Ramsey show quite a bit. I still do. And, you know, they just they constantly deal with couples who divorce. They argue about money. They're arguing about money, how to spend it. Or they've divorced over money problems because they, they weren't on the same page. In their finances, there was maybe only one spouse doing the finances and then the spouse became dishonest or, or misguided, took some bad advice, or the spouse handling all of the finances dies unexpectedly, leaving the remaining spouse confused and frustrated. I don't even know what to do. I got these bills coming in the mail. What do I do? Where do I send them? What account? Right? Sitting down together and budgeting prayerfully, regularly, um, to, it develops healthy money habits, helps you avoid so much of that frustration I just talked about, and it gives you an opportunity together to invite the living God of the universe into your financial situation. And that's a neat thing, that God can come and He wants to be involved in our lives and on our, our financial situation. And I believe our financial journey as a married couple is a, a major part of our story 
together. And it's one that we want to walk together, experiencing both those, those highs, you know, when, when we, we meet some financial goals, and then also experiencing those lows, right? When life throws you curveballs and, 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 and just drains your savings account or whatever it is. But you go through it together. It's part of your story. And you might, I don't know, you might find this hard to believe, but I look forward each month to sitting down at the kitchen table with my bride and just going over our budget. I look forward to that because we've done it enough that we've worked through some arguments and things, right? And some tears. <laughs> that I, I look forward to it. Because even the tears are going to bring us together more. Um, and the rewards. It's a journey together. Um, I love seeing how we did the last month. Putting extra, I'm not even like a number crunching guy. I hate numbers. You know, I, I'm not, a, I, I hate Excel spreadsheets. But I know it's an important part of our journey together. And it's exciting to me to see how we did last month together to, you know, log into our bank account, transfer money, the money we saved that we planned to save, we transfer that to, I don't know, savings or, or to, towards retirement or to the kids' education, 529 plans. And then, we, and then we plan for the next month ahead. I love that. It's so much fun to do that together. It's a way we glorify God together as faithful stewards. And uh, like I said last week, married couples, look it up. There is a, a married advantage. Married couples have an advantage, an economical advantage, if they work together. And when most couples start budgeting, it's not surprising to learn that they find several hundred more dollars when they start budgeting, typically $500 or more, that was just disappearing off into the wild blue yonder of gas stations and fast food joints. Okay? $500 and that they were missing, on blowing on us unnecessary stuff that they're not going to miss anyway. Last week I heard about one woman spending $1,700 on Dr. Pepper a year. $1,700 a year on Dr. Pepper, my favorite drink, until she sat down, did a, did a budget, and then realized she's spending $1,700 a year on Dr. Pepper. Okay, so she probably lived at the gas station or the drive-thru. But I imagine now she's buying cans of pop. But, you know, that's a lot of money. She didn't realize she was spending because, until she did a budget. And budgets also reveal opportunities that we could be missing. Opportunities. Uh, you may think, there's no way I can invest 10 to 15% like most financial advisors say to do. There's no way I can, I can, I, I can barely, I'm barely scraping by. I can't, I can't invest 10 to 15% of my, my, uh, my income. But most people find that they really can when they start budgeting. In the book, Money and Marriage God's Way, Howard Dayton shares this really neat story about a couple named Juan and Jasmine, who, after just taking the time to sit down, put a budget together, realized, wow, Jasmine can stay home and take care of the children like we've always dreamed. Because they've punched the numbers you know, they didn't realize, they didn't think that they ever could, but they sat down, they just punched the numbers, and they're like, wow, she can actually stay home, take care of the kids. And, and they realized she was only bringing in an extra $832 a month after childcare and transportation, and, and they realized they were wasting about $1,000 a month on a want but don't need lifestyle. You know what I'm saying? Like cars they really didn't need, but they wanted so they decided to honor the Lord with a more affordable lifestyle, and she stayed home with the kids. And you know what's funny? Is soon after she's home with the kids, she finds this, this really creative way to do her bookkeeping from home, and she ends up contributing even more to their income than before. It's a really neat story. And, you know, if, you, um, if you're a couple like that, you're wondering, you maybe you want to stay at home with the kids or something, and, and you're wondering, how about just practicing living on the one income, maybe his, his income for, uh, for the months, right? And maybe, maybe you don't have kids yet, but as soon as you have children, you want to stay home with your children. Practice living on one income and take her income and set it aside to savings or paying off debts until the children 
arrive. That's really great financial advice. I've, I've heard more than one place. But um, if it doesn't feel as if that's possible for you, you don't think that's possible for you, um, you've, you've punched the numbers, it still doesn't seem logical, I tell you what, God honors those who honor the Lord. God is still the God of the Exodus. You know what the God of the Exodus does? He makes a way through the sea. You remember what Jesus did when he was here? He, someone asked him about paying taxes. You know, how, you know where he got his tax money? Out of a fish's mouth. Right? <laughs> he pulled a coin out of a fish's mouth to pay taxes. God can make a way. You honor him, he'll honor you. Um, at the end of the sermon notes, you can find a budget worksheet. But to be honest, um, there are budgeting apps out there that just make it so much more easier than those, those worksheets. Uh, my wife and I, we use the Every Dollar app. I'm just sharing what we do. This is uh, called the Every Dollar app because you're keeping track of every dollar. Um, you're, you're planning every dollar to go somewhere. And as soon as we buy something, we basically, we look at the receipt. As soon as we get in the car, we just, we punch that amount into the app, what we spent, where, and it's done. And we both share this app, and we can both edit it constantly. And we're constantly adding, adding it, adding to it. And uh, our phones are tied together in this app. And uh, it's so simple. And we can even make adjustments just like that. And we make adjustments all the time to it as needed. So anyway, that's just a really helpful tool. So much easier than these old, you know, working it out on paper. But uh, offensive tool number two is to build an emergency fund. Build an emergency fund. Some of, uh, some of you th- might call it a rainy day fund. Right? Your grandma called it a rainy day fund. I like to call it a, a GOK fund. God only knows fund. Because God only knows uh, the curveballs that are coming down the road to uh, try to knock us off our feet, okay? You quit having so many uh, unnecessary financial emergencies when you've saved for the curveballs that life's going to throw at you, and, and, and there's going to be some curveballs. Uh, Proverbs 21.20 says, The wise man saves for the future, but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. The wise man saves for the future. The prudent see danger and take refuge... But the simple keep going and suffer for it. Proverbs also says uh, in chapter 6 that you should consider the wisdom of the ant. The ant gathers in the summer so that it's ready for winter, for when the hard times come. If you're wise with money, you want to be wise with money. The Bible says you're going to be a saver. You're going to save more than you spend, and you're going to save some of it for future use, just like the ant. It's kind of uh, sad to think that an ant is more, has more wisdom than most Americans who have more debt than savings. Okay, um, An ant is smarter than me. <laughs> uh, that's kind of a blow, right? When the Bible calls you a fool, it's like, oh, that stings sometimes, right? But an emergency fund is, is something you build up. It's not for vacations, because it's really tempting to use it for vacations. It's not for buying large toys when you get the urge to do so. It's for emergencies only. When Murphy's Law knocks at your door. Okay, and you know what Murphy's Law is. Whatever can go wrong, will go wrong. Look at that beaver there. Got crushed by his own tree. So just a couple of months ago, my wife and I felt like Murphy moved into our house, okay, because we had air conditioner problems, heater problems, our furnace, uh, electrical board almost burned up. Glad our house didn't burn down. We had a water heater problems. We had minivan problems all at the same time, and I just thought... Murphy, get out of my house. I wanted to kick him out, you know. But, you know, that would have been so stressful and so hard on us had we not had an emergency fund exactly for situations like this. I mean, it was painful, it was stressful, but not as painful and stressful 
on us as it could have been had we not had an emergency fund built up. Had I bought that Lund boat sitting outside the bank a few months ago, right, honey? I tried to get her to let me buy it. But, you know, if I would have bought that Lund boat, I would have been really stressed when Murphy showed up at our door knocking. Or if I had a bunch of credit card debt. And, you know, credit card debt, man, this is why, why most people are suffering today, man. Uh, this is where credit cards, credit cards get a lot of people in deep trouble. Because instead of saving many think, boy, I'm just going to bust out my credit card, right? This is my uh, church card. But you guys don't have one of those. See, when trouble comes, I just put it on the church card. I'm just kidding. <laughs> right? <laughs> this thing's like a magic wand, right? If trouble comes my way, I'm just going to bust out my magic wand and wave it over it. And then Murphy's healed. Well, what happens when Murphy knocks twice or three times? And you can't get that card paid off at the end of the month. Or you think, I'm going to buy my groceries on this thing. And then uh, Murphy knocks a couple times. And then all of a sudden, it's like you're really struggling to get that credit card debt paid off. And so my advice is don't rely on your credit card. Rely on your savings account for those emergencies. Okay. Um, those things come with a lot of interest. And it's hard, they're just really difficult to pay off. Um, that's what an emergency fund is a buffer against. You know, the, the loss of a job, the appliance burnout, the transmission blow-ups, medical emergencies when you got to go to the hospital and see Ed, right? Um, all those different things. So how much should you save in an emergency fund? That is the question. Um, if you have consumer debts, excluding your mortgage, that's not your consumer debt. I, I think most financial advisors recommend a small starter emergency fund of $1,000 just to have some buffer there. You get $1,000 saved up, start paying off your debts. Once you get those debts paid off, and then you start beefing it up, right? So you have like uh, three to six months worth of expenses uh, saved up. So if you lose your job, you've got three to six months worth of, right? Uh, financial piece still there. Um, number three is to run from debt. Run from debt. Your income is your greatest wealth building tool. And you cannot build wealth, can't build up your savings, and be the generous person that you want to be if you're giving all of your income, your greatest wealth building tool, savings building tool, if you're giving it to creditors, you're giving it to someone else. I mean, Hello, right? That's pretty logical. I'm giving my income to someone else, therefore I don't have it anymore. So we've got to learn to get out of debt. We've got to run to get out of debt. But couples with debt are more likely to divorce than couples without debt. I mean, you don't even, have, you don't even need a statistic for that. You see it all around you, right? You, it affects the decisions you make. Debt puts stress on marriages. That's why the Bible says to run from it. Just run from it. Romans 13, 8, owe no one anything except love. Don't become a bond slave of someone else. Proverbs 22, 7 says the borrower is slave to the lender. You're a slave to that lender. It's going to affect the decisions you make. Proverbs 6, 4 through 5 says uh, if you owe anyone, uh, surety, your debt to anyone, allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids, right? Work hard. And free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of a hunter, like a bird from the snare of a fowler. It's a trap. It's a debt is a trap. It's a it's a hunter. You want to run from it. And that's what Ramsey calls getting gazelle intense. You don't sit around and wait for the government to bail you out. You don't depend on the government. Uh, you you run. You you don't sit around, you run like a gazelle. Running from a cheetah, you fight tooth and claw, even if you don't have tooth and claw like a gazelle. Right? <laughs> I mean, you just, you, you got to run from it. As a young believer, I remember hearing this truth uh, going through Financial Peace University. I'm a brand new believer at, at, back in that day, and I'm just thinking, why hasn't anybody told me this? Right? This was so revolutionary to me. It was transformative. Because the, ex the expectation is that we're just going to live in debt all of our lives. I have to live in debt. If I have a car, I'm going to be in debt or whatever it is. 
I have to buy a car in debt. No, you don't. Start running from debt, the Bible said, and I'm a fool not to run from debt. One guy described Americans this way. Sorry I'm picking on, a, uh, picking on us so much, but we're the most prosperous country in the world, right? But we have the most debt in the world. It doesn't make a lick of sense that we should be the most prosperous people, have all this freedom and, and, and propensity to be wealthy, and we're all just most of us, just slaves to debt. We don't have any money. It's just the weirdest thing. One guy described us this, this way. We drive our bank-financed car over a bond-financed highway on credit card gas to open a charge account at a department store so we can fill our savings and loan-financed home with installment-purchased furniture. If that's normal... I don't know about you, but I want to be strange. I want to be really strange. I don't want to be that guy. And the best way to get out of debt is this, the, the debt snowball tool. You've probably heard of this from whatever financial advisor you've had. You, you list all of your debts, your consumer debts, not your mortgage, your consumer debts from smallest to largest. And regardless of interest rates, don't even pay attention to interest rates. List your debts from smallest to largest, and you start making minimum payments on all the, the largest debts that you have, except the smallest one. And you start to, you start to work. You, maybe you sacrifice a little bit. Um, you get rid of unnecessary um, wants. And, and you start to throw as much money as you can at that smallest debt. And once you get that debt paid off, you keep sacrificing, and then you pay off, you throw what money you were throwing at that small one, and you, you start throwing at the next biggest debt. And then you take those two. Once you get those two paid off, you start throwing that at your next biggest debt and your next. And you start gaining traction. You start to pay off these loans really quickly. And uh, some financial coaches are going to tell you to pay off debts. You know, just look at the one that has the highest interest. You know, that's called the debt avalanche, not the debt snowball. But it just doesn't work because if you're going to pay the one with the highest interest, I mean, typically, it's your largest loan sometimes, and it's just, you're going to lose motivation. Paying off your debt, being wise with your money is 80% behavior, 20% knowledge. 80% behavior. We know the right thing to do, we just need to do it. And you are going to find traction and motivation and be more encouraged to keep going if you start tackling those small debts and let them snowball. And uh, to speed up the snowball process, you've got some uh, tips in your notes, right? Uh, number one, ask God for help in paying off your debts, right? Give, give, give your financial situation, situation to God. You can work more hours, find a better paying job, start a side hustle, start mowing lawns. Uh, hopefully, we get a lot of snow. You can push snow, um, sell unnecessary things, garage sales, cut, it, cut unnecessary expenses, or, you know, Ramsey's got a debt snowball calculator. You want to go punch in your debts and see how fast you can pay those off, and that'll give you a date, a deadline. That can be encouraging. But just run from debt. But as Christians, if, if we're going to take on debt, if we're going to take on debt, I think it's wise to make sure that uh, it's reasonable, that it's low risk for us. And I say that, because as Christians, it's, it's an integrity issue if we don't pay off our debt, right? Christian witness is marred by failure to pay off debt. I've heard of pastors in towns, you know, losing their reputation because they had all this debt and they couldn't pay it off. Proverbs thirty-seven twenty-one: the wicked borrows but doesn't pay back. Ecclesiastes 5, 5, better not to vow than to vow and not pay. So, Howard Dayton, again, uh, great. He's the founder of Crown Financial Ministries. He, he said this, he said, if you're going to take on debt, make sure, number one, the item, is per the item purchased is an asset with the potential to appreciate, right, go up in value and produce an income. Number two, the value of the item equals or exceeds the amount of money owed against it. 
And then number three, the debt should not be so high that repayments put undue strain on your budget. So you, it's, it's reasonable. Cars, for example, don't fit in that category. They, I mean, f- they depreciate 40% of their value. As soon as you drive them off the lot, they depreciate in value. 40% within just the first few years. It's just a depreciating asset. So it's not really an asset. Homes, though, typically appreciate. A well-purchased home is going to be one where the down payment is significant enough that if you have to sell it right after you buy it, you're guaranteed to pay off the mortgage. You're guaranteed to pay it off. And the mortgage is not so much that it puts strain on your budget and keeps you from being generous and keeps you from saving and keeps you from investing. That means the average person is going to want to limit their mortgage payments to 25% of their income. Okay, um, I wouldn't go even go that high, but that's me personally. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't have a mortgage at 25% of my income and continue to save and continue and invest. So, um, offense number four, invest for the future. Invest for the future. Bible talks about avoiding get-rich-quick schemes, right? And then, but steadily saving and investing over time. Avoid get-rich-quick Slowly and steadily invest, save. Proverbs 21.5 says, steady plotting. Steady plotting brings prosperity. Proverbs 13.22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Not just his children, but his grandchildren. So I don't know about you, but my hope and my plan is to retire with dignity. Okay, I want to make it through old age without having to rely on my kids' accounts, right? I, I, they're whatever it is. I don't want to rely on my kids. I don't want to rely on the government's social insecurity program. Uh, and I, I want to leave an inheritance to my grandchildren. And that's only going to happen, number one, if God allows it, right? Because I'm not the captain of my own destiny. I'm not the master of my own fate. But, and number two, if I'm wise now, steadily saving over the course of my life, um, God might allow that to happen. Investing right now is difficult, I know, because, right, the stock market, right? But Ramsey says, Ramsey says the only people who get hurt, yeah, right? It's like this. But, like Ramsey says, like the only people who get hurt are the people who jump off the roller coaster right in the middle of it. So just keep steady plotting, right? It's that principle. Don't operate by emotions. Just keep, keep going. And uh, most are going to suggest you invest 10% of your income and ideally 15%. Uh, remember, though, when it comes to investing, the goal is not to be wealthy. My goal is not to be wealthy. It's to be free. I want to be free, and I want to be generous, and I want to be a wise, faithful steward of God's resources. If being wise makes me wealthy, makes you wealthy, great. That's fantastic. I love it when God blesses His people like that, but it's not the goal. The goal is to be faithful goal is to be free, to be generous. And I can have more joy in giving because it's more blessed to give than receive. Number five, give cheerfully. And this is the last offensive strategy, but I'm telling you, the most wealthy people, their stats have been taken, the most wealthy people are generous people. Generous people. I've left this for last because this is the most important. Giving cheerfully. God's word says before we do anything with our money, we should, get, we should give to him first. The usual questions are how much and when? How much do I give? When do I give it? Well, in the Old Testament, remember they had what they called the tithe. It was 10%. Leviticus uh, 27.30 says a tenth of the produce of the land, whether grain or fruit, is the Lord's and is holy. Proverbs 3.9 says a tithe just means 10%. Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, the first fruits, 
of all your crops. So the 10% was uh, right off the top given to the Lord. Uh, don't wait till the end of the month because it won't be there. But if you give, right, chances are you're going to have enough to last you through the end of the month. Um, that was Israel's law. That was the Mosaic law. And uh, if I think if you would have um, added everything they were to give together, it wasn't just 10%, it was just over 20% that they were giving annually. And uh, in the New Testament, there is no tithe command actually placed on us. And you're going to hear this a lot, that we're actually called to tithe. We are not called to tithe. We have no command tithe on the church. Did you know that? It's interesting. The New Testament just says, because uh, we're not the nation of Israel living under the law. We're the church under the new covenant. And uh, the Bible just says we're to be intentional, intentionally and cheerfully generous. Just be generous people. One of the verses answers the when. Paul said, on the first day of the week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. So first day of the week, Sunday, right? The Lord's Day. And that's why we have an offering box back there if you want to give, but we don't pass plates because we don't want to pressure people. And uh, other reasons. But uh, how much? 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7 says, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has prospered in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. Like, oh no, the plate's coming. I got to put 20 bucks in so I don't look bad. Right? It's not that. Not grudgingly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, we could say uh, attitude is more important than the amount. Remember the widow who put in like a penny or two and she gave more than the other guys that were just dumping coin bags, right, into the coffers. She gave more than them because her heart was right. Her heart, she wasn't putting money into to be saved or whatever. It was just her way of being faithful to God. She just loved. She wanted to give. But attitude, or amount, attitude's more important than amount, but amount isn't totally irrelevant either, is it? We're to give cheerfully, and Paul says, give bountifully too. Challenge yourself to give more than you are. So God is always uh, giving of himself. Think about this. God's constantly giving of himself as our provider and sustainer. He gave his life for us. And so when we become generous givers, we become more like him. God's a giver. We become generous givers just like him. It's really neat. Giving is a display of faith in God to provide for us. We're trusting God to provide, even though we give some away. God, giving is an act of faith. It's a part of our worship. It's character building. In fact, one man said, giving is not God's way of raising money. He doesn't need our money. It's God's way of raising men. God's way of raising men and women. He's building them up in character. And even though there's no command to tithe in the New Testament for us, I think the tithe does give us an idea of what God realistically expects, right? Uh, be generous, but don't be a dingbat, basically. I think we can all afford a tenth. I think the tithe might be the beginning of our giving, but not the limit by any means. I've always felt like there should be some, you know, the, the, the tithe concept is just kind of like a basic formula you know like this is foundational this is like god what god realistically expects but you know what i want to have some fun too because it is fun to give once you start giving and you look for prayerful you're prayerful and spontaneous about who you give to lord put someone in my life that really needs help right that 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 pregnant right single mom working down at the restaurant something like that you just ask for god to put people in your life that you can bless and that's one of the reasons why I want to be wise with money. I want to, be, I want to have some wealth so I can be generous. So I can give someone a car, you know, a decent car that needs it. Just stuff like that. It's so fun to give. And, you know, if you feel like you just can't give that much, even after you've done the budgeting, you've punched the numbers, and you say, I'm, I, I cannot give 10%. I'm going to challenge you to do it anyway. To take that to the Lord and just say, Lord, I'm going to give to you, and I'm going to trust you to provide. Because there is story after story after story of God showing up and providing for you when you, in faith, give right off the top. And I'm not asking for a raise of hands, but I bet most of you could say, this is our God. This is our Jehovah Jireh God who provides all that we need. 
Malachi 3, 8 through 12, the Lord told Israel, He said, test me in this. You've been robbing me of, of my, uh, my tithe, right? And so God says, test me in this. You give, I'll see to it that you, have, you'll, you will not lack anything. And that was a promise to Israel in Malachi, but it's not a promise to us. But I still think that God honors this in principle today. I think he does that all the time. And remember, there's other ways you can give that aren't, that's not financial, right? We can give other things, uh, possessions and things and help and time. So uh, anyway, we should also remember giving is an investment in a heavenly stock portfolio. It's an investment in, in heaven. Jesus said we're storing up treasures in heaven when we give. Every time you give, heaven t- takes note of that. And says, your reward is coming. Right? This is, this, we're not talking about salvation here, are we? Right? I don't give and try to be a good person in order to get to heaven. That's not the reward it's talking about. That if I'm, good, if I'm faithful with my money, then God will, right, I can buy heaven. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus, we were bought with a price, right? Jesus paid for all of our sin on the cross. And we, all of us, every single one of us, is only going to get into heaven by grace through faith in what Jesus has done for us, right? Revelation 20, I was studying this last night. The small and the great before the great white throne, guess what? They're all, they're all judged by their works accordingly. The small and the great, right? God has no partiality. Bill Gates and the bum, okay? I just said bum because it rhymes with Bill. But <laughs> Bill Gates and... The guy living in the alley in cardboard. Impartial before God. Right? They're both going to get into heaven the same way. Bill Gates cannot buy his way into heaven. Small and the great before God. We're only getting in by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But uh, we, how we use our money does have eternal ramifications. We're storing up treasure in heaven when we give, and Jesus said that. And I want everyone from Shadron and Berean Church, this, this flock that I'm responsible for. And I feel the weight of that sometimes, you know. I was reading Hebrews this week. Just the weight of being a pastor over a flock. I want you guys to prosper, not just here, but Eternally. Eternally prosperous. I want you guys to hear on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. Sin has made us unfaithful stewards of God's resources, and Jesus Christ wants us at Shadron Berean to become faithful stewards again so that we can hear well done good and faithful servant you've been faithful over little you've been you've been good with earthly resources here some heavenly resources for you enter into the joy of your master makes money pretty practical today doesn't it how we spend our money eternal ramifications there now very quickly Thanks for your patience. Let's just look at a few defenses. This is very brief. Um, Every offense needs a good, strong defense, as we learned yesterday from the Cornhuskers. I would say that these defenses that I'm about to give you are not necessarily the Lord speaking. I can't point to a verse and say, here, you need to do this. But I can say that these things are just wisdom for our day and age. Proverbs 19.8 says, The one who gets wisdom loves life. He's going to enjoy life. The one who cherishes understanding will soon prosper. These are just some wise principles here. Number one is just to get proper insurance. Okay? Every, uh, you got all, you got all these things, right? You've worked so hard to save and invest your whole life. What good is that if one accident or health problem can come along and just wipe it all out like it's nothing? That's what insurance is for. It's your defense. It's to protect what you're saving and working so hard to save up. Right? 
auto insurance, health insurance, life insurance, and uh, if, you, if you want for information on that, Ramsey Solution has classes and materials to help you weed through all of that insurance. Defense number two is to create wills. Wills see to it that your assets that you've worked so hard for are, are, are protected, and, and you're actu they're actually going to go where you want them to go when you die, after you're gone. So I, I want to pass on inher inheritance to my children's children. I better have a will to make sure that that happens. Otherwise, I'm going to die uh, without a will, like 7 out of 10 Americans do, and 30% and of them before retirement. And uh, I'm going to leave the state to dictate what to do with all of my assets, who's going to get what. And that's going to create more expense on the family to have the state do it. And then it's going to just make, add stress to my family in an already difficult situation. God told Hezekiah in 2 Kings 20, verse 1, this is what the Lord says, put your house in order because you are going to die. I wish he would give us all that heads up, right? It's coming. So you better put your house in order. Well, technically, we all know we're going to die, and we don't know when. And so this, just, this, is just, this is just wisdom right here. Create a will. Do your family a favor. Put a will together before you die. I recommend... Uh, contrary to Ramsey, actually, using not one of these uh, online will creators, these little things they got online, uh, I recommend getting a professional local lawyer to get this set up. Yeah, it's going to cost a little bit more, but some of these online will creators trying to create a will online and having someone sign for it later, some of those actually fail to hold up in court. So I would just recommend getting a real lawyer. Also, try to communicate once per year with your executor the guy who's in charge of your stuff when you die. Because you're going to, when you create a will, you have to have an executor, someone who's responsible for carrying out your will. But let them know what your will is, where it is, what your wishes are. Um, this is part of being a faithful steward. I can't take anything with me when I go. There's no hearses pulling a U-Haul behind them. Okay, except for that one guy who actually did, and it went online and ruined every pastor's illustration. <laughs> Someone took a picture of a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. But we can't take anything with us when we die, when we go, but we should be wise with who we leave it to, how we leave it behind. That's part of being a faithful steward. One of the big, one of the big things you're leaving behind is your children. What if you die before your children are out of the house and grown up? If I die, I want to make sure, I have the responsibility to make sure my kids are going to be raised with godly friends or godly family. Not the state. I'm responsible for them. Another one is my bank account. I have seen, and I know there's some people here who could say that they have had a terrible time accessing their loved one's bank accounts after their loved one, loved one died. It, just, it was so hard on them, on, on them during funeral stuff, all that funeral stuff's going on, it's so hard, and then you can't, you can't do anything, because you don't know anything about, you don't, know how, you don't have access to their bank account, because you never set that up, you don't have access to their passwords, I mean, you've got to get this stuff taken care of, make it easy on your family, the last part is just get a legacy box of some kind, a security box, I don't care, just have a place for this stuff, for this important information, the wills, the life insurance, the, the passwords, and you, you have a place that's hopefully fire-resistant. It's impossible to be fireproof. But you have a place where your ex executor knows this is where you can go, this is where you can find it. And I let, remind them of that every single year. Doing this is going to bring you peace of mind and it's going to make it easy on your executor and on your family. Um, I don't know how many dead people have tried to befriend me on Facebook, right? Or refriend me. I'm like, dude, you died two years ago. Why are you sending me a friend request, right? Because some guy over in India hijacked their account and is starting to send out bad stuff through their accounts. I don't want my Facebook account to end up like that, so I have a place with passwords where my executor knows I'm going to go here, get them, shut off my Facebook account, get rid of it, okay? And stuff like that is just, we don't think about that a lot, but it's so important. Um, 
in closing, I just want to bring it all together. All right, I've talked about a lot of steps, and I've talked for a long time. But I want to bring these all together in one step-by-step plan. And this is not my plan. You can see whose it is, Ramsey's. But uh, Crown Ministries also has a money map that you might use to supplement this. It's more detailed. But this, I like this because it's so simple, so easy. I mean, you're wondering where to start. Okay, you give me all these good Bible principles. Where do I start? Where do I go? What do I do with this? Number one, save $1,000 in a beginner emergency fund. Uh, If you got that, check that off the list. Start step two, pay off all your debt. Then after you get your debt paid off, beef up that emergency fund. Step four, five, and six are all steps that you take together at the same time. You've got your emergency fund, you've got your debt paid off, and now you're going to start investing 10 to 15%. You're saving for college for your children, trying to put them on a firm foundation as well, and you're paying off your house at the same time, hopefully early. And those are four, five, and six that you take together at the same time. But that right there is just a step-by-step plan. Most people aren't that bad with money. Not that bad with money. They just don't have a a plan. And that's what that gives you. A step-by-step process, direction. And my challenge, uh, I've I've been giving a challenge every single week in this marriage series. And my challenge this week is for the spouses to dream together about step number seven. Dream about it. Where do you want to end up in retirement? Dream about it, but don't, you know, hold it so tightly that if it doesn't happen, right, then he causes other problems. But dream about your future. Think about where you want to be in five years, where you want to be in 10 years, where you want to be in 30 years, 40 years, and get on track with some of these baby steps or Crown Ministries money map and start knocking out some of these financial goals together and start finding some joy and purpose in your money because you get to glorify God with your money every single day. How cool is that? Is that neat? It's a financial journey you take together. Um, As we close this series, I want to praise God. Both with the worship team coming up here and uh, just as we've seen God speak to us about marriage uh, this summer. Did you guys enjoy this series or what? I heard one, yes. I've heard uh, singles, uh, married couples, people searching, wondering if they should get married. I've heard, I've heard good comments from every whatever, whatever position you're in. And uh, I think we've done a good job, I think, of holding marriage high in honor like Hebrews 13 says. But there's only really one question left, right? What are you going to do? I think we all have a better understanding of how marriage works, right? But what are you going to do with it? You understand God's design, I hope, now. Now that you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to build your house on the rock? Or are you going to build on the, on the sand? That's the question. On the rock or on the sand? Out of straw and sticks or out of building blocks? Bricks. The choice is yours. Joshua's choice. Remember Joshua's choice? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord.